right. Well, good morning, church. If you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll be in only verse 7 today. As you're turning there, I want to um, just make a quick announcement related to Serve that's coming up in just a couple of weeks. We have uh, five different spotlight events uh, throughout the year as a church in which we focus on different uh, areas of of the Christian life. And so in April, uh, we'll be focused on Serve, which uh, hence the name, we actually go out into the community and we showcase the love of God uh, by serving the community. And uh, so there are five different opportunities for you to, to participate and serve this year. And uh, so just want to encourage you, even if you're in a small group, to think about how can we as a small group serve uh, together in one of these five opportunities. And so if you check out our e-news, uh, there's more information about that and how to uh, sign up. So let's, uh, let's read God's Word together, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Uh, last week, we looked at uh, what does it mean to be a godly wife as it relates to, uh, to submission. And so today, we'll be focused on what does it mean to be a godly husband. And so no doubt, I had many uh, wives throughout the week praying for me, and uh, so I feel the weight of that, and so encouraged to, to dive into uh, verse 7 today. So God's Word reads uh, this way. It says, Likewise. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is God's word. Let's pray together, and we'll jump in. Oh God, we ask for your help in this moment. We pray that you would give us eyes to see your word, give us hearts that are open to receive it, and Lord, give us feet that apply it well today. We pray for the name and beauty of Jesus. Amen. Well, it's uh, spring. Spring is here, uh, which for many men in this room, that means that uh, golf is to be played now. And uh, personally, I'm not a huge uh, golf player. I I don't necessarily love playing golf. I go out there and I hack a little bit and uh, more so enjoy just the time to connect with other people. Um, But personally, I find golf to be actually pretty frustrating uh, to play, which means I don't really play it that often. But I remember in high school, I was learning how to play golf uh, with a couple of my buddies, and uh, there were four of us total. And, uh, and what we did is we played, we played two on two, just like this little competition. And, uh, and I'm just an average golf player. I'm with my buddy who's also an average golf player. And, uh, and so we play uh, 18 holes, and we get to the end of it, and we're, we're playing pretty well here. And, and so we're thinking to ourselves, surely we're going to beat our other two friends who are in the other golf cart. So we got to the end of it, and we, we were char- starting to exchange our scores. And my friend, who was kind of in the other golf court, said, man, wh- why did you guys score that way? Well, and, and we're like, well, what are you talking about? We just took both of our scores and added them up. They said, no, we, we weren't playing that. We are playing a best ball. And I said, oh, well, what is that? And he said, well, you take the best score after each hole, and then you add up all of those. You guys basically had double our score. And I said, what? And I was just like, how do you have different ways of, of playing golf? He's like, yeah, you can play stroke play and match play and, and Texas scramble and force them. There's all kinds of ways to, to, to score in golf. And I remember being like, okay, I'm, I'm done. Like, I understand basketball. Like, you just put the ball in the hoop, right? You get two points, three points. But this, this is a little bit more difficult. And, and he's like, yeah, well, we just need, next time we need to provide more clarity and understanding about how to use your scorecard and how to tally your score. And, and I, was, I was thinking about like that experience, and I'm not just using a golf illustration because I'm talking to husbands this morning, but 
I think that whole experience of the need to understand what is our scorecard in golf is very applicable, but also in the arena of what it means to be a godly husband, to be a successful, to be a biblical husband, we need to know what our scorecard is as husbands. We need to know what our target is. What, what are we aiming at as it relates to being a godly husband? That I would argue that I think there are more husbands that know how to tally their score on the golf course, and yet not nearly enough husbands who know how to keep score with what it means to be a godly husband. And so this morning, I, I want to look at this idea that Peter presents to us of what it means to be a godly husband. What, what is our scorecard? Because part of my fear as, as I think about Christian marriages and I think about the role of a godly husband is that I think that we're far too easily influenced by the world. That the world would say that to be a successful husband that we need to provide for our families, we need to put a roof over their heads, we need to make sure that our kids get in the best schools, that we need to make sure that we go on the best family vacations, and yeah, maybe go to church every once in a while. And if you, if you do all of those things, then, then you're doing well as a husband. And yet I would argue that if that's your scorecard, you're, you're missing some of the most important and foundational aspects of what it means to be a godly husband, things that Peter addresses in chapter 3, verse 7. So my aim today is to provide more clarity, to provide a better understanding for us as husbands of what it means to be a godly husband. And I want to challenge those of you who are single, that maybe you're here and you're a single uh, man. I, I just want to challenge you just to, just to take a lot of notes today, just to take this information and and just to chew on it, digest over it, because this is your target if and when the Lord chooses to bless you with a woman that you can call uh, your wife. But this is something to aim for, to start now, to become a godly man, a holy man, so that you don't just wake up one morning and you're starting to live this, but you've been, you've been putting forth the effort years in advance. If you're here this morning and you're a single woman, I want to challenge you and encourage you not to settle just because you're alone. That to view this scorecard that I'm going to unpack this morning as non-negotiables to look for in a man as you date and as you pursue other guys. But to take this sermon and to, again, write down notes and to think about, do you think through the lens of, of, of this scorecard when you're talking to other guys and dating other guys? And if you're here and you're a wife, man, I just want to challenge you and just say from the get-go, we we need you. Uh, speaking from a husband, like we need you to encourage us. We need you to affirm us when you see some of these qualities in us as husbands. But we also need you to encourage us when we fail. We need you to help pick us back up when we, when we miss the mark as it relates to what it means to be a godly husband. And so I just want to challenge you to kind of take this scorecard as I unpack it and just pray these qualities over your husband because we're in need of you. So I don't want this message to, to be just for husbands. This is really for all of us as we look at this scorecard for what it means to be a godly husband. And so this morning, here's uh, the big idea as it relates to the scorecard for a godly husband. You're going to see three marks in this big idea. That a godly husband loves his wife like Jesus, intentionally pursues his wife, and honors his wife. Okay, those are our three marks of a godly husband that we're going to look at 
in chapter 3, verse 7. And this passage is really one of probably four or five other passages throughout Scripture that speak directly into the role of a husband. And so this, the, the three marks are not exhaustive, but this is, these are the three marks that Peter addresses in chapter 3, verse 7. So let's dive in and look at mark number one for our scorecard, that godly husbands follow the example of Jesus. Look with me at uh, the first word in verse 7. Peter says, likewise. I just want to stop there and encourage you not to quickly skip over that word because that's a really, really important word. See, what Peter's doing here with that word likewise is he's using that word in a similar way as chapter 3, verse 1, that Peter is grounding our passage in what precedes our passage specifically in chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. Peter is saying, look, husbands, your role is to mirror the, the role of Jesus as Jesus loves the church. That he says in chapter 2, verse 21, he says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So again, Peter is grounding verse 7 in the example of Jesus. Now, what example did Jesus leave us as husbands, and how does that impact how we love our wives? Well, the example that Jesus set was to love the church, the way that he loves the church and continues to love the church. We, as husbands, are to love our wives in the same way. That Paul unpacks that, that notion in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 through 30. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and did what? He gave himself up for her. And so Paul says for us as husbands that our standard, what we are to aim for, is the example of Jesus who literally died for the church. Okay, so husbands, our standard for what it means to love and lead our wives is not what our friends are doing with their wives. It's not what our coworkers are doing with their wives. It's not even what your father did with, with your mother. It's not how the world depicts what a husband is to do with their wife. Our standard for what it means to be a godly husband is to follow the example of Jesus. And what we see Jesus doing with the church is he literally died for the church, and we as husbands are to do the same for our wives. Now, husbands, you may hear that and say, well, yeah, I know that. Like, I've, I've heard that, that I'm supposed to love my wife as Christ loves the church. But just stop and think about that for a moment. Like, that is, that is unbelievable. Like, that standard that I'm to die to myself every day for the flourishing of my wife, that is a daunting task. Like, I know, I know last week, like, another daunting task for wives to submit to imperfect men. Like, that is really, really hard. This is really hard as well. That husbands, you are to die to yourself daily, to die to your selfishness, to die to a me-centered living, to die to a, a sense of entitlement or that, that voice that says that everything needs to revolve around you. So husbands, as we think about what it means to love our wives and follow the example of Jesus, it means dying daily. And there's no way to explain it in any other way but to die to yourself for the betterment of your wife. Now, I love how C.S. Lewis explains the role of a husband in the context of a, of a marriage. He talks about how the husband 
is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. And he says, because that's true, husbands get to wear the crown. But then he says, the, the crown is actually made up of thorns. And C.S. Lewis is referring to the crown of thorns that Jesus wore in John chapter 19 before he died. And so C.S. Lewis's point is, hey, husbands, we have a role as leaders within the home, that we have authority that God has given us as, as heads over our wives, but not to use that authority to cater to ourselves, but we use that authority in order to die to ourselves, to love our wives unconditionally. I remember trying to uh, understand this notion early on in my relationship with Lindsay, my wife. Uh, we were uh, engaged at the time, and we were going through premarital counseling. And uh, the couple that was counseling us went over this very principle in Ephesians 5 of, of husbands are to lead and love their wives, and wives are to respect and submit to their husbands. And, uh, and I remember driving, uh, driving Lindsay back to her dorm, uh, and we were talking about, uh, about our counseling session and I remember turning to her and asking her a question that, husbands, I do not recommend asking uh, your spouse, but I remember turning to her and saying, Lindsay, when we get married, are, are you going to obey me? And uh, there was kind of this awkward silence, like, I, like what is she thinking about? Like, of course, you know, she should say yes immediately, right? Well, I'm not going to tell you what she said in response, but trust me, we uh, had a really good discussion on that way home. Um, Full of, full of leading and submitting. It was awesome. But, um, but with that, my point is, is that husbands, if you, have to, if you have to ask your wife to follow you or, or demand her to follow you, chances are you're probably not leading well. That if you have to ask your wife to submit to you, it's probably more of a reflection upon your leadership than her heart. And so for us as husbands, we are to lead by dying to ourselves and loving our wives unconditionally so that our wives can then follow our leadership as we set the pace in the marriage. I do a lot of counseling with married couples, and inevitably I always kind of remind the couple of this cycle that should take place, this endless cycle of the husbands loving their wives and the wives respecting their husbands, just this constant, endless cycle, and, and really healthy marriages have really good momentum of loving and then respecting, loving and respecting. And yet almost every couple asks me the question, well, which one comes first? Does the wife respect the husband first, or does the husband love the wife first? I say, well, what, what example does Jesus and the church set? And they say, well, I mean, sounds like Jesus loved the church first. And I said, exactly. So husbands, you set the pace. You, in order to create this healthy cycle, your role is to love your wife unconditionally by dying to yourself so that that then creates an opportunity for them to respect and follow you. So part of our job description, husbands, is to conduct our living in such a way that our wives know that they are loved and lovable, that we're instilling more and more confidence in our wives that our hearts, our eyes, our minds are reserved for her and her alone as we cherish and we value them. So husbands, how are you doing with this first mark? Do you have a posture of constant dying to yourself in your marriage? Are there areas of your life that you need to, 
that you need to die to, that you need to put on the cross in your life in order to better love your spouse. But that's the first mark, to love our wives by following the example of Jesus. Now, number two here, the second mark as part of our scorecard is that godly husbands intentionally pursue their wife. Intentionally pursue our wife. Peter continues on in verse 7. He says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. We'll just pause there for a moment. This phrase here is really, really important. This is really kind of the central command in our passage to live with our wives in an understanding way. Now, what does this mean? Well, in the original language, in the Greek, this literally could be translated to live with your wife according to knowledge. That there's this sense in which we need to be considerate of our wives. That this implies that there's something about our wives that we need to know, that we need to pursue, that we need to gather information and knowledge about. That this type of knowledge is is not just having an awareness of, but it's the type of knowledge that provokes action. And it's a type of action that's, that's being shaped by the, by the knowledge that you are gathering, the information that you're gathering because you're studying your wife and you're learning more and more about your wife. It's kind of like if you wanted to live with your boss in an, at work in an understanding way, what would that mean? Like, what would that look like to live with your boss at work in an understanding way? Well, it would mean that you are trying to figure out what pleases your boss, that you're putting forth the effort and the time and the energy in order to figure out how can my boss flourish and how can I thrive in my role as it relates with with me and my boss. And then you're going to gather that knowledge and then you're going to put forth the time and the effort and apply that knowledge to live with your boss in an understanding way. Well, in the same way, husbands, that's what we are to do with our wives, that we are to study our wives and figure out what pleases them, figure out how it is that they flourish, how it is that we thrive in our role leading and loving them well. And husbands, we we do this principle really, really well at work, don't we? Like we understand what it means to live with our bosses or our employer at work in an understanding way. Like many of our husbands are flourishing at work because you get this principle and you're applying it at work. You understand what is required of you, what pleases your boss, what, what will help your boss flourish. And yet part of the struggle is that husbands, we, we come home from work and for some of us, we give our, our wives and our families just sloppy seconds as it relates to time and energy in our pursuit of them. I want you to think, husbands, for a moment, that if you put forth the same type of effort at work as you did in pursuing your wife, would you still have your job tomorrow? Are you putting forth the same type of effort at work as you do in the context of your home in pursuing your wife? See, part of the struggle, I think, for as, as husbands is that for some reason, like, we date our wives, and, and we get engaged, and we get married, and, and we have that honeymoon stage, and then for some reason, like, we, we stop pursuing them. Like, we think that because we've lived with our wives for a couple of years, that, that we have them completely figured out, and so we stop pursuing them. We stop studying them, and yet the reality is, is that our wives are constantly growing and evolving as people and followers of Jesus 
Therefore, that demands for us husbands to constantly be knowing more about them, constantly be studying them, constantly living with them in an understanding way. I love Tim Keller's book on the meaning of marriage. He, he basically claims that every single person marries the wrong person. And you read that and you're like, wait, what? And, and he unpacks that and he says, yeah, the person that you say I do with on your wedding day changes and grows. They're not the same person a year later, five years later, ten years later. And you wake up and you're like, wait, who is this person? This person's changed. This person's grown. This person's evolved. And he says, exactly. That's the beauty of marriage. But it demands constant growth and constant pursuit of that person so that you're not doing life with an outdated version of your wife. Your wife is different, and that demands you studying and pursuing your wife. And so what does this mean to live with our wives in an understanding way practically? Like what does that actually look like day in and day out? Well, could mean a host of, of many things, but let me just give you three of what this could look like in the context of your marriage. Here's, here's number one, is that husbands, you need to know the spiritual shape of your wife. Husbands, you need to know the spiritual temperature of your wife and where she's at spiritually. Like you need to know on the spectrum of your wife growing more and more like Jesus, you need to know where she's at and what her next step is, and to be able to engage and invest in her and help her flourish spiritually. Husbands, you need to know what your wife's prayer life is like. You need to know what what they're studying in Scripture and and what their theology is like and and how they're feeding their souls and how you're participating in that. Husbands, you you need to know the the, the answer to this question about your wife of of what has your wife been, been learning about God lately? You need to know where she's growing and how she's growing and and how she best connects with God. You need to know the spiritual shape of your wife. Yet not only that, I think number two, husbands, we need to know our wives' emotional condition. That to live with them in an understanding way means not only do we need to know what they need from the grocery store, we not only need to know what Uh, what they need fixed around the house. But husbands, we need to know our wives' hearts. And we need to know not just when their car needs an oil change, but we need to know our wives' burdens, what their joys are, what what condition their love tank is, if their love tank needs to be filled up. We need to know our wives' fears and insecurities. We need to know their anxieties or or what relationships and friendships are in their lives and how the culture is impacting their hearts. Husbands, you need to have an awareness of not just on the surface of your wife, but beneath the surface and what's going on in here. Maybe one way to apply this is, husbands, when you come home from work, don't just ask your wife the general question of, hey, how was your day? But take it a step deeper and be a little bit more specific to pursue their heart. Ask them the question, hey, babe, what gave you joy today? Or hey, what frustrated you today? Or where did you see God at work today? Just take it a step deeper where they can feel and they know that you're pursuing their hearts. The husbands, we need to, we need to woo our, our, our wives again. We need to pursue them romantically. And not, not our definition of what it means to be romantic, but, but their definition of what it means to be romantic. 
That I, I will never again surprise Lindsay with a romantic date by purchasing two tickets to go see a basketball game. Like that just, that didn't work. She didn't feel pursued. This isn't romantic. It's more about you than about me. And, and so it just like demands having an awareness, living with your wife in an understanding way of what she considers something to be romantic. Husbands, we need to not just like relax with our spouses. We need to relate with them and connect with their hearts. We need to know their emotional condition. Number three here, we need to know how to best communicate with our wives. You know how to communicate with them. What I mean by that is not just knowing what to say, but knowing when and how to say it. Right? And that, that demands having an understanding of our wives. It demands knowing what type of tone, what type of posture to use in a given moment. That if you're trying to have these deep and important discussions at, at 9 p.m. at night, and your wife is like falling asleep uh, because she's tired from working or chasing the kids all day, or, or she's getting chippy with you, then usually it's not the best time to connect with your wife about something deep and important. You need to, you need to know that. You need to apply that in, in how you communicate best with your wife. As it relates to, to conflict resolutions, husbands, we need to fight fair. That your marriage may, ne- may not be free of tension or healthy marital discussions, but you need to be able to die to yourself in those moments and know how to communicate best with your wife. You need to kind of adopt the question in the heat of the moment and ask your wife, hey, honey, I, I'm hearing you say this, and that's frustrating you because of that. And now, is that, is that accurate? You need to be able to kind of in the heat of the moment, just press pause and not just unload on your wife, but live with her in an understanding way and ask questions and pursue her heart. I think one of the best ways that you know that you're living out this verse of living with your wife in an understanding way is how well your conflict resolution is, is going. And, and it's not being free of tension and free of those healthy debates or discussions, but how do you resolve it? And husbands, you take the lead in that way. Remember uh, our first year of, of marriage, I was uh, um, interning at a church, and it's first year of ministry, first year of, of marriage, and I had a, a mentor and an accountability uh, partner who was trying to speak into my marriage, making sure that we were starting out on the right foot. And he was asking me all kinds of questions about, about this verse and what that looked like in the context of, of me as a, as a husband. I remember him asking me, so how do you guys like spiritually connect? Like, what does that look like for you guys? And I remember explaining it to him. I said, well, you know, I take the Bible and, and I, I, you know, I choose kind of a chapter. I read the chapter to Lindsay, and then I just start talking about it for about five, six, seven, ten minutes. And he said, wait, you, you do what? And I said, well, yeah, I just open the Bible, I read it, and I just start talking, and, and I explain it to her. And he said, wait, so, so are, you, are you preaching to your wife? Is that how you spiritually connect? And I, I said, well, I, I, I'm not using illustrations or a poem. Like, it's not, it's not a sermon. And, and he said, no, that sounds like you're preaching. So, Chris, let me, let me just give you some advice. And he literally said this. He said, Chris, you need to shut up. You need to shut up, and you just need to ask your wife questions. You need to point her to the text, but ask her questions and listen. And that was one of the best pieces of advice early on in our marriage because I was getting into this habit of going through seminary, learning all kinds of things about the Bible, and 
assuming that my role as a leader is just to dump information and knowledge upon my wife and just transfer it that way. And I was violating this phrase of living with her in an understanding way of what does it look like to spiritually connect and, and how best might Lindsay absorb theology and the word. And so I remember just taking that. I'm still growing in that area. But husbands, we need to know what it looks like to best communicate with our spouses. And look, there's a, a host of other areas that we could apply this, this phrase to. But I, I think what Peter is driving at, I think what he's saying is he's saying, husbands, don't view your wife as an equation to solve, but view your wife as a novel to read and to immerse yourself into and to cherish every phrase that you're, that you're observing in your wife. Don't, don't view your wife as, as someone to solve but view her as as someone to cherish and to invest yourself and to study and to learn more and more about as she continues to grow and as she continues to evolve into Christ-likeness. Look, husbands, there's nothing more important in our lives besides our relationship with the Lord than our pursuit of our wives. That any man can treat their, their wife in a disrespectful way, in a condescending way, or to be a couch potato. That's, any guy can do that. But it takes a real man, a man full of courage, who is, who is living a godly life, who is pursuing their wife. And husbands, we need to meet that mark and hit that mark on a daily basis to live with our wives in an understanding way. Number three here, the third mark of a godly husband, as we think about what our scorecard is, is to honor our wife, honor our wife. So not only to follow the example of Jesus to love our wives as Christ loves the church, not only intentionally pursuing them, but number three here is to show our wives honor. So look at verse seven with me. Peter says, look husbands, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now, before we get into more practically of what it means to honor our wives, what, what does Peter mean here by calling the woman a weaker vessel? Well, some understand this to mean that women are inferior intellectually. Or some might take this meaning that women are inferior spiritually or emotionally. And yet, I don't think that's what Peter is driving at here. I think Peter what he's doing is he's making a general statement about all women, that women are weaker physically. That Peter doesn't use the Greek word for wife in that phrase. He uses the Greek word for women, that this is true of all women, that they are generally weaker physically than husbands. Look, we know this can't mean spiritually weaker. Uh, Galatians 3, Paul talks about how there's no Jew or Greek, there's no slave or free, there's no male or female, but we're all one in Christ. We're all equal spiritually. This doesn't mean uh, that women are inferior intellectually. Like, that would be untrue of even my own marriage. Lindsay's way smarter than me. Can't mean that. I think what Peter is getting at here is that the way that God has designed men and women is fundamentally different physically. And yet, what he's talking about here is with that reality comes the responsibility for husbands not to take advantage of our wives by by, by being too physical with them, but to actually, just the opposite, to show them honor and to respect them, to not use our strength or our position of authority to cater to ourselves, but to honor them. 
And so what does this look like to, to honor our wives? Well, again, there could be all kinds of ways that we could apply this. Let me just give you four and unpack them uh, quickly here. Let me just give you four words to write down. To honor our wives means to prioritize, to guard, to serve, and to value. Prioritize, guard, serve, and to value. That for us as husbands to honor our wives means to prioritize them. What, what better way to honor them than, than to spend time with them and to guard the time that we have with them, to spend one-on-one time, to, to submit our calendars to them and say, do you, do you feel like you're a priority in my life? Husbands, when we say that we're going to be home at a certain time, to, to be home at that time and to honor your wife by making them a priority with how you use your time. Number two there, to guard our wives. So not just physically or just to provide for them, but husbands, we are to guard our wives' hearts, that we are to understand what what types of relationships are impacting their hearts, what types of of TV shows or, or faulty mindsets are impacting the way that they live, and we are to step in and help guard them that we are to be proactive in that way to make sure that we're guarding our wives' hearts. Number three here is to to serve our wives. Husbands, we need to be able to study our wives well enough to identify what is a burden or a weight in our wives' life and and to be proactive and to serve them, to serve them without being asked and to honor them in that way. And then number four here, to value them. This is a great way to honor our wives, to, to affirm them, and to encourage them. It's just a phenomenal way to, to honor them. And husbands, be specific as you, as you encourage and as you affirm your wife. That not just to say that, that this is beautiful in our wives' uh, lives, but to be specific. That you can say, uh, honey, you, you've really grown spiritually. Don't just stop there, but be specific and identify where your wife has grown spiritually and to actually be specific. We could talk a lot more about this, but husbands, it might be a good application point to take those four things and even ask your wife, hey, honey, how am I doing in these four categories? Do you feel like a priority? Am I guarding? Am I serving? Am I valuing you enough? And what can I do to improve in those ways? But part of the reason why, why I love this passage is that as, as Peter is kind of like punching husbands in the gut here and, and putting this really high standard, he not only tells us these three marks, but he also tells us two reasons why it matters. Okay, so he doesn't just say, hey, here are three things to do, but he also gives us two things of why this matters in order to further motivate us. And I just want to point these out to us as we close. That first, husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way, showing them as the weaker vessel since or because they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Now, in other words, Peter, what he's getting at is even though we have different roles, we are equal, we are of equal value. That wives are recipients of the same promises, the same future inheritance in Christ, the same access to God. They're, they're part of the royal priesthood, the chosen race, just as we are as husbands. And we have to remember that in Peter's day, this was extremely countercultural. Like, wives were not equal in Peter's day. And so this, this is a huge statement by Peter. Now, Peter says, because this is true, that we're co-heirs with the grace of life, that we are to honor our wives 
and to love them well. Well, a second reason why this matters, and I'll spend a little bit more time unpacking this, is because for us husbands, somehow your prayer life and your relationship with God is impacted based on how well you lead or you don't lead. Did you notice that last phrase in verse 7? He says, do all of this so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, what does that mean? What is Peter driving at there? I think what Peter is partly doing is he's he's starting to set up chapter 3, verse 12, which, which reads this. He says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And even in in Psalm 34, which, if you remember, Psalm 34 is the psalm that Peter just consistently quotes and uses all throughout 1 Peter. Again, it's a great psalm to meditate on and to memorize throughout our sermon series. But, But Peter says in Psalm 34, verses 10 through 12, he says, And let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Man, this is, this is a strong word. I think Peter could be driving at the sense of, of a husband who is not leading well, who is not loving his wife well, typically is so self-centered, is, is so arrogant or self-sufficient that they probably don't even pray to begin with. That they probably don't even spend the time seeking the Lord in prayer, and so their prayers are hindered. I think that's part of what he's getting at, but I think mainly what Peter is driving at here is Peter is laying down a warning that God is not interested in the prayers of a husband who is not loving his wife well due to his lack of righteousness. I think, I think the reason he's driving at that, because it fits the context with 1 Peter 3.12 and Psalm 34, that you could look at it this way, that praying not only helps us live rightly, but living rightly also helps us pray. That God has appointed a way for us to live which actually will help us pray. That there are ways to live that hinder our prayers, and there are ways to live that help our prayers. Or, if you like it better, this is how uh, Wayne Grudem unpacks this meaning. He says, So concerned is God that Christian husbands live in an understanding and loving way with their wives that he interrupts his relationship with them when they are not doing so. That no Christian husband should presume to think that any spiritual good will be accomplished by his life without an effective ministry of prayer. And no husband may expect an effective prayer life unless he lives with his wife in an understanding way, showing honor to her. Now, there is a way that we are to live with our wives that that actually frees our prayers and, and helps empower our spiritual impact. And yet, there's also a way to live with our wives that can jam our prayers and ruin our spiritual impacts. Look, the reality is, is that like, there are some of us in this room as husbands, like, we hear that, and, and, and it doesn't really bother some of us. Like, we hear that call, and we're like, okay, so if I don't live with my wife in an understanding way, my prayers are going to be hindered. Well, 
it doesn't really matter to me. And the reason for that is because for some of us in this room, you don't really pray all that often. And so this doesn't really hit you hard. And yet maybe others of us in this room, this really bothers you. This bothers you a lot because that means that you've been praying for that new job or an increase financially or that new, that new boat or that new toy, that new car. And so you're thinking, no, 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 I don't want my prayers to be hindered. I want God to, to give me my list that I give him when I pray. And you know, look, that's, that's not what Peter's driving at here. He's not saying that the prayers of, of when you ask for a job or that's, are going to be hindered. What Peter is driving at is God is saying, if you don't love your wife well, you are on your own spiritually. That my ear is no longer bent down to hear you. I'm turning away. The reason why that matters is because if your prayers are being hindered, husbands, that means that you're not connecting with God. And that means that, that God is going to start to feel distant in your life. That's going to mean that, that God is, is going to feel like he's not real. And so the call here is, is, to, is to turn and make sure that we're loving our li- wives well. And that the reality is, is that for, for some husbands in this room, you, you know exactly what that feels like to have your prayers hindered. You know exactly what that's like to, to almost feel spiritually naked and alone, to, to not get anything out of the word, to, to not get anything out of worship because you've gone through a season where you haven't loved your wife well. And maybe you're in that season now where, where you feel like, like God has left you and you've, you've been blaming God for, for God feeling distant. And yet, this passage is saying that if you feel spiritually weak as a husband, that's because you've been living up to the wrong scorecard as a Christian husband. And so maybe even in this moment, the, the Lord is, is prompting something in you as a husband to step up your game so that that might revive you spiritually as it relates to loving your wife well. And look, there, there is nothing that we need more than godly and holy husbands who are loving their wives well. I remember reading a statistic this past week that if you look at a family <clears throat> where, where no one is a Christian yet, and if a child is the first person to become a Christian in the family, then there's only a 3% chance that the rest of the family will become a Christian as well. But when you take the father, you take the husband, if, if the husband is the first person to become a Christian, then there is a 90% chance that the rest of the people in his family will also become a Christian as well. So husbands, look at me for a moment. Look, don't allow anything or anyone to rob you or belittle the God-given influence that you have been given to lead well in your family. Don't allow the enemy don't allow your, your past failures to rob you of that influence that God has given you. Don't, don't allow your insecurities. Don't allow like feeling intimidated because your wife is smarter than you, because just a hint, they're all smarter than us. But understand like what influence the Lord has given you, what authority, what leadership he has given you as a gift. And don't believe the lie that you are not influential in the context of your family. Look, husbands, we, we need you. We, we need you to step up and to be godly, that, 
that your own soul is not only on the line, but, but there are generations after you that, that's dependent upon your holiness and upon your godliness. Who else is going to pass the baton of faith rather than you, husbands? Like looking at your children, who's going to pass the baton of faith to them if it's not you? Look, there are generations and generations that hinge on your ability to be a gospel or to be a godly husband. Like to be a godly husband not only impacts your marriage and your family and the community and, and the church, but it impacts generations to come. And look, husbands, you have been given everything you need to live this out in the gospel. Everything you need is found in the power of the gospel because this is what the gospel declares. Here's some bad news first. The gospel declares is that God's standard of perfection and acceptance is so perfect and so high that no one reaches it. That's the bad news. Okay? No one hits that mark. And yet the good news is that Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, came, he lived a perfect, obedient life. He got up on a cross, and he died for our sins. And so how are we accepted before God? How does God look at us, and how do we reach that standard of perfection? It's by uniting ourselves to Christ by faith, not by our own works. You're not going to hit that standard by going to church every week or by performing enough good works or, or being the best husband. It's only by faith in the name and the person, the work of Jesus Christ, that God can look at you and say, I accept you, you are holy, you are righteous. Not because of you, but because of Jesus. Look, husbands, the gospel not only saves you, but the gospel empowers you to actually live this out. And maybe you're, you're looking at these three marks, you're looking at this scorecard of what it, what it means to be a godly husband, and you've been falling short time and time again, is it because you're relying on your own strength? Is it because you're looking at a different scorecard of the world rather than this one? Let me just remind you that through the power of the gospel, you have the living God living in you, empowering you for everything that you need for a life of godliness. So husbands, we, we need you. Your wife needs you. Your family needs you. Generations to come needs you. So look, the, today and, and, even, and even last week, wives, you guys got hit hard last week. Like just pastorally, like this is, this is an extremely convicting area of our lives when we look at our marriages. Man, I just spent all week with this. The Lord just whipped me up and, and convicted me. And, and so part of my desire for this morning is that we would just declare our dependency upon God in prayer. And so what I want to do, we've got a couple songs to sing to close today. I just want to view this area, calling it kind of the pit, just, to, just for you and your spouse, just to come down during these songs and just hit the floor and just pray and just cry out to the Lord together as a married couple and say, God, we need you. God, we can't, we can't live up to this standard on our own. We need your grace. We need your strength. We need your, your forgiveness because of the times that we fail. So look, I just want to challenge you and encourage you. There, there's nothing holy or special about this place down here, but just to symbolically, as we sing these songs, just to stand up and just to come down to this front and just to cry out to the Lord and say, God, we need you. Like this isn't just reserved for marriages that are about to, about to fail or on the rocks. It could be that. But this is really for all of us, that all of us have steps to grow and we need prayer. 
We need God to intercede and to give us the grace in order to live this out. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing the last couple of songs. I just encourage you, invite you just to come down with your spouse and just to pray and seek the Lord out. So let's pray together. God, we just commit these moments to you. Lord, what a, a daunting task that you have given us and as a, as a husband and even as a wife. God, we cannot do this on our own. God, we see marriages after marriages who are falling apart because they have looked inward. They've looked to their own strength, their own ability, their own wants and needs. And God, we declare that as a Christian marriage, Lord, we want to look to you because you have designed marriage to be a visible icon of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So God, help us to live that out. Lord, I pray that you would free us up even in this moment to, to just seek your heart out, God. Pray that your spirit would just be unleashed in this room to move us in that way. Pray this in his name.